Welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. That's just really dull. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> there you go. There's his intro. Do we should keep that? Oh, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think our I think our podcast listeners have got used to the fact that we flub every now and then and have fun yeah. around it. So. So hello and welcome to the film file. And uh, yeah, that inauspicious opening. <laughs> you know, every week I try to come up with something, you know, witty, off the cuff. This week, nah, yeah, that's all we got. Yeah. That's all I've got in me. All I had. <laughs> anyway, who are you? <laughs> I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. Thank you as ever for joining us for another film file. And uh, who knows what today's show may uh, may happen in this. <laughs> this could this go show. in any direction, really. It could, it? it could be. You've literally been whizzing back from a weekend away. Yeah. Just to get here to record today. <laughs> I have. So um, it's been my partner's uh, partner's birthday. So I took her away for a weekend, which was nice. We went to the coast. It's a friend of mine's hotel, and he took really good care of us. And uh, um, Lots of wine was drunk and lots of beautiful food was ate and some nice walks on the beach. You know, if anything's going to um, going to help you sleep well, it's a, it's a good walk on the beach. When you get home, you breathe all that sea air in. But I, I kind of shot back to to get back to do this. So as you probably guessed, dear listeners, um, it's not live. So sometimes <laughs> neither are we, but it's, it's not live. So it was a couple of days before the show goes out that we record this. So literally got out of the car. Uh, got back to discover that the cat had had a, uh, a a cat litter party, as we keep finding <laughs> cat litter around the house, and nobody parties like a cat like a cat litter party. I can tell you. So tidy that, that up. ten times over, I, and I won't. Trust me, I won't. And so just to start thinking, I've got to now get my head into the show, tidied up the house, and here we are. So that's my weekend. Andy, how's you? Uh, we've had a busy week at the cinema, um, as you can imagine. Bet, normally, yeah. we drop off on a on a busy film. We normally have a really strong Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then, like weekdays, you're still busy, but not hectic. But we've been selling out on the Batman Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which has been absolutely fantastic to see. Uh, it's doing great business. Uh, but remember last week when we briefly spoke about Mark Lamar? Yes. Yeah. Whatever. And what had happened to Mark Lamar? What has happened to Mark Lamar? So I've, I've looked up on this one. Uh, he's on Twitter as at Lamar underscore Mark. And he did radio up until 2010 and initially plans to make a return to radio, but has since said on Twitter that he considers himself retired. He did appear on Radio 4 comedy show Phil Ellis is Trying as the voice of Billy Bonker in September 2020. But in general, he just spends his time on Twitter. He's just enjoying having a simple life. God, yeah, I'd love that. I, that you know, yes. I can't say ever, ever, ever happening, but, yep. you know, I'd love to to just... Not work, do this, see some movies, do the other radio show for No Barriers Radio. If you didn't know, folks, we've got a, a radio version of this as well. And I, I would love to, uh, I'd love to just do that. That'd be great. That would be my life. I would be happy. Um, not going to happen, but I, I, yeah. I'd like that. So yeah, just... just going back a step, uh, the Batman. So you say it's doing ridiculously well. You've been busy. Yes. Are we surprised? Are we surprised it's doing as well as it did for a, for a three-hour movie? Or is it just that people are still hungry for the hero? 
Personally, I'm not surprised that it's doing well. Batman films generally do well anyway. And everyone who was getting like, oh, a three-hour film, will people sit through a three-hour film? They sit through two hours 40 of an Avengers film. They sit through almost two hours 50 of June. They sit through that length of film anyway with the advert and trailers on board. Yes, people will sit through a three-hour film. I, I don't get where this whole perception that films are too long. No. A film is as long film, as it needs to be. I was about to say exactly that. It's not a new thing for films to be long because let's let's look at the classics and the epics that people used to flock to. Gone with the Wind is a long uh-huh. film. Ben-Hur's long. Ten Commandments is a long film. Cleopatra. We're just getting back to that golden age of cinema kind of approach where they tell, tell an epic story in the time it takes to tell it. Yes, there's still some shorter movies which sometimes outstay their welcome at 90 minutes. I'm talking about anything with Kevin James's name on it. Um, <laughs> but why, why do people constantly, whenever a film announces this runtime, go, oh, audiences aren't going to like that? They do. They love it. And they stick around through the end credits, even when the only bit at the end of the end credits is a trailer that got released at the Super Bowl, which is now out of date, which we'll get to in the news section later. Because <laughs> okay. uh, uh, there's, there's uh, a fair bit going on. Uh, but aside from the business, I mean, outside of work, I've spent all my time on Gran Turismo 7. Well, that was your neat thing last week. Yes, and I, I, I'm i obsessed. I'll get home at like one o'clock in the morning after a night shift. It's like, I need to do my daily races. need to do my daily races before I sleep. That's it. I'm not sleeping anymore. I, I literally <laughs> don't sleep. I, ju- I just get home and drive all night. I drive all night to get to you. <laughs> yes. Hello, Cindy Lauper. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, those observant people out there might have noticed that we've started to get a presence on WordPress this week, as I've now worked out how to auto-send the podcasts to a WordPress blog. And also, and this was funny, I enjoyed doing this. There's a section in the blog set up for putting transcripts. So I've been running it the episodes through an auto-transcript service and then trying to make any sense of how this automated AI deciphers me and Lee talking. And it's brilliant. It's hilarious. What I'm posting is the edited version. So I posted on the latest one. I posted our Batman to and fro, but I had to do a lot of editing because Batmobile came out as um, Bat Munchables, which I don't know where that comes from. (laughs) It's the Adam West version. (laughs) The Bat Munchables. (laughs) Robbie, grab your Bat Munchables. But it it, it gives a chance to like, you know, I mean, it's another way that people can engage with us because on WordPress, you can leave comments, you can like post replies to things, you can like things, you can reshare them. So it's it's filmfileuk.wordpress.com if anyone wants to go and check it out and start following us over there. But we've had a few people already pick up on it without us even posting about it so oh, uh, it's ge- it's generating a bit more of a bit more audience and if you're one of those new people who found us through wordpress hi wordpress buddies hello welcome to the chaos <laughs> that is the film file uh, i've got i've got an idea that i wanted to share with you as well for our twitter feed and it was uh, talking about the batman and looking back when we did the research the other week for the michael keaton tim burton batman movie and it was all the actors who were considered for the role of Batman. So as a Twitter question that we should have on the film file is who was your almost nearly Batman? Because I'm really intrigued. And, and this stemmed from years ago, I did a pitch for DC uh, with, a, uh, with a, an artist at the time who was, was really hot 
uh, up and coming artist and yeah. who's still at, uh, at uh, still in the comics industry. And he did his version of Batman. This is just before Michael Keaton. And he used Steven Seagal, who was not known at that point, as his model for, for, for Batman. Steven Seagal was, was very, very unknown at that particular point uh, to, to regular audiences. So it was, uh, who is your Batman? Who is the Batman that, that could have been? And you remember there were people like Bill Murray mentioned. Alec Baldwin was mentioned as, as Batman. So who is your Batman that could have been in the world of what if? Interesting question. So I'll throw that one out this week. Yeah. See what we Answers get. Answers on Twitter, please. Answers on Twitter too. Because you imagine what a, what a Bill Murray Batman would have been like. I mean, the <laughs> fans went went crazy over Michael Keaton. Just imagine what they'd have done over over. It absolutely Bill bewilders Murray. me how how Bill Murray would have approached it. I, yeah. I I now want that in my life just to see. Well, exactly. <laughs> Who were the other Batman contenders for the Patterson role? Who in yep. the alternative world is would have been the other Batman? We could play this game with James Bond. Well, they do that every casting of James Bond anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> but some of the actors who were up for the role of James Bond. Yeah. Okay, but this week, who would have been your alternative universe Batman? Okay, so what have we got in the show this week? Well, Andy and I are going to come to loggerheads <laughs> over our deep dive, because I've been talking about it for absolutely weeks, and that is Bookaroo Banzai. So our deep dive into Bookaroo Banzai. And no matter where you are, you're always there. Andy and I will both be reviewing The Adam Project, but Andy's going to go for your delectation and review. Turning Red, uh, which I angry watched. I angry watched on Disney Plus because that should not have been on Disney Plus. It should have been a cinema release. Power to the Pixar. And as ever, we've got the box office and the news in the segment that we lovingly call by its first name, The News. The. <laughs> it's going to be that kind of show. So, no surprises this week, Andy. I'm guessing the Batman is dominating the box office. Worldwide? UK? US? You tell me. So, it's no surprise that this weekend has been dominated by the Batman once again. In the US, it's scored an additional 66.5 million, taking its US domestic total to 239 million already. In second place, Uncharted is still hanging in there taking another 9.3 million for its US total of 113 million at this point in time. Third place is the live performance of boy band BTS, Permission to Dance, uh, taking 6.8 million. An impressive third place for a one-off live streamed event. Uh, Dog retains fourth place and Spider-Man No Way Home is refusing to move out of that top five and is still clinging on with another 4.1 million added to its total, taking its US total to 792 million so far. Here in the UK, again, the Batman retains the top spot, taking another 7.4 million pounds, taking it to 26 million in the UK alone. Uncharted, similarly to the US, keeps second place with another million added onto its total, which is now up to 21 million in the UK. Uh, BTS also managed to get third place in the UK charts with their live streamed event. There's a lot of BTS fans out there. 
from one singing and dancing performance to another one as Sing 2 retains fourth place again. It's its seventh week out and it's just constantly raking in that weekend business. And the Duke charms the audiences in fifth place. So interestingly enough, off the back end of that, I was involved in a discussion recently on Five Live, which is, is the superhero movies, are they over? Uh, are, are we getting bored as an audience? So clearly, with those kind of figures, with this kind of attention, for not only the Batman, but for Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, or whatever the next big Marvel movie is, which is Doctor Strange, is that going to do it? But there doesn't seem to be an end, does there? No. for the interest in, in, in superhero movies. No, last year when Black Widow didn't really like hit the ground running and Eternals could should have done better, people were like, oh, is this it? A superhero movie's dying. It's like, well, did anyone really want a Black Widow movie? And Eternals is a whole lot of new characters. So people aren't, weren't bought in and invested in those characters yet. And then Spider-Man comes along and goes, yeah, well, uh, people like superhero movies and they'll still come, come back. And Batman, the reason why DC constantly go back to doing more Batman is because they know they get the audiences in and yeah. it's a guaranteed success. I mean, it, with the amount of money that it's taken already, it's already done better in its opening eight days than what um, Joker did in its opening eight days, which Joker finished just over a billion. So that means that if it continues in this vein, Batman's going to be tracking to a billion by the end of its run. That's pretty good for a three-hour detective noir story which isn't all about capes and costumes it's a more serious grounded themed film let's throw into the mix shang chi as well because shang chi yeah. overperformed uh, people weren't expecting much from that but it, it, it just hit the right i think the trailer on that really helped towards the release because it showed the fun energetic side of marvel whereas eternals the trailers right up until the end looked beautiful but didn't look action-packed and your general audiences generally want something familiar looking. Batman, even though the trailers kept it being grounded, it's familiar. Everyone knows Batman. If they did another DC film with a less, lesser known character in the same vein as Batman, it wouldn't perform because people don't identify the characters. Joker did well because people know Joker, even though they didn't know that Joker. The name of the character and the design brought people in anyway. So I, I think that you know, superhero movies will keep going. The familiar properties will introduce people to unfamiliar properties which will then grow and grow and grow remember just over 10 years ago none of the general public knew who dr strange was no one yeah. knew who iron man was yes here we are now they are on everyone's conscious yeah. okay so moving on sticking with sticking with superheroes and sticking with warner brothers in particular and warner brothers has juggled quite a few of its film releases over the next year or so in particular the DC slate, which at the end of the Batman, you stick around for the end of the credits to watch a Super Bowl trailer that was released, which tells you of all the DC upcoming films in 2022, celebrating 2022 as the year of um, DC. And now that trailer is out of yeah. date because two of those films are now in 2023. Is this a late edition? I think it was shoehorned in because they saw how well Doctor Strange did okay. with have uh, the Doctor Strange trailer tracked with being put at the end of Spider-Man. And they've panicked and gone, uh, let's tag this on. Because it just jumps to it. It doesn't feel like it flows into it. And it's even in a it's in a different aspect ratio to the rest of the film. So it's not even being engineered to be put. It's just tagged on. It's poorly tagged on. Okay, because all I knew was that there was some sort of uh, clue that led you to a website. Yeah, it's not worth sticking around for. If you've not watched the Batman yet, don't stick around for the end credits thing. 
Uh, <laughs> and that's not just so we get the screen clean better. But anyway, back to the DC slate. So League of Super Pets, which was due out in May, is now July the 29th, 2022. Okay. Black Adam has slipped to October, October the 21st, 2022. Here's the interesting one. Shazam Fury of the Gods, which was due for June 2023, is now December the 12th, 2022. Shazam is going to be going head to head with Avatar. Wow. Interesting. That means that Aquaman, which was initially supposed to be going head to head with Avatar, has moved to 2023. March the 17th, 2023, to be precise. And The Flash is now June the 23rd, 2023. Boy, The Flash is never going to get here, is it? For the fastest man in the world, he's certainly taking the long way around. It's because he keeps travelling through time, and that's where the problem is. <laughs> hey, Andy, Andy, if, if we didn't have time, everything would happen at once. <laughs> would you stop it? <laughs> <laughs> David Sandberg, who's directing Shazam, who directed Shazam and is directing Shazam 2, as posted literally an hour before we started recording today. Shazam 2 never addresses why their suits are different now. If anyone was going to ask, my plan was to say it's because Barry messed with the timeline. But now we come out before Flash, so I'll have to say the wizard did it. Pro filmmaking tip, <laughs> put a wizard in your movie to be cinema sins proof. Marvellous. Uh, but yeah, it, I think a wizard would help a lot of movies, to be honest. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, it would have helped uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Ooh. We'll get to that later. <laughs> but but yeah, so the DC slate is completely shuffled and completely rejigged. The Flash, which looked like the Flash was going to be the linchpin to kick, kick things off for this new wave of DC, is now the back end of it. Batgirl hasn't got a release date yet, but rumours are saying they're planning towards the end of this year, which means that the Michael Keaton Batman will return in Batgirl before the Flash. So they're clearly not doing the Marvel route now, which is... You needed to have, and, and and that's why they had to get Black Widow out. You needed to have Black Widow before Hawkeye started. Yeah. And apparently the ending of that, whether we meet uh, the Contessa, was supposed to tie into Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah. Anyway. But DC are, are working that all their properties are quite independent of each other by the looks yeah. of it. There's no linking thread. They can throw them out at whatever order they want. Um, a few other non-DC uh, Warner's films have also set new dates. The Timothy Chalamet-led Wonka film has been delayed nine months, coming out in December 2023 instead. And the Meg sequel has now locked in August the 4th, 2023. So it's a huge reshuffle, which they've said some of this is because of delays in production caused by COVID. But we were, we were only reporting a couple of months ago how Shazam was in the can yeah. and just doing post-production. And Aquaman was pretty much finished filming. And The Flash had finished filming. So... I think it's more, if you looked at what their release schedule was, this year was very top-heavy, and next year was quite light. I think they've split things up, because Aquaman is expected to be a billion, billion and a half hitter. Right. So they want something for next year to keep their finances going. Batman's hit huge this year, so they don't particularly need another huge hitter, especially when they've got Fantastic Beasts only two months away as well, which, despite my feelings on that, it will do business because it's got a bought-in audience. Shared, shared those uh, feelings with you, Andy. Bringing Shazam from 2023 to the back end of this year, it's a film that they, they're not expecting as huge amount because the first Shazam film, it had its audience but wasn't a big seller. So it means that they're not putting a big property like Aquaman up against Avatar, which I think it makes sense not to go head-to-head -head with a James Cameron film. I know some people are trying to write off Avatar 2 by saying, oh, is it too late? Never write James Cameron off. Never. Everyone's always done this, and every one of his films that people have written off, Titanic, Avatar, 
have always blown people away. Yeah. So Avatar 2, you'd be daft to go up against it with a big hitter because you'll damage yourself. However, something like Shazam 2 would work, would play well alongside it for a different audience. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of shuffling. We'll see this again with other studios, no doubt. Sticking with Warners and the talks about the Dune sequels. And I say sequels because the scribe, John Spates, has spoken to the playlist this week and was asked about the second film and the potential of leaving the door open for a third film in the series. And he said that Dune Messiah, the book, picks up years after the close of Dune. And yes, Villeneuve has talked seriously about making that film as well as a conclusion of the trilogy. So it it sounds like it is potentially on the cards. I know we speculated this when Dune was coming out because I said that it makes sense to do all three of them because that would be the Paul Atreides trilogy completed. It sounds like they're not they're not just speculating it, they're basically planning for it. Uh, Dune Messiah, as he says, is an interesting book, which in some ways deconstructs Dune and plays as a cautionary tale even more than Dune does about the dangers of blending religion and politics, the hazards of following charismatic leaders and the dangerous struggle that's always alive between the individual and institu- institutions. While we're in the world of Dune, you will have noticed then that Florence Pugh is in talks for Dune Part 2. Yes, uh, for the role of Princess Irulan. Uh, now, Princess Irulan in the first book, Dune book, has a very minor presence. It's She's not really significant. So why would you go for casting of someone like Florence Pugh unless you were hoping to introduce her more and she has a bigger role in Dune Messiah? So this makes sense to me that someone like Florence Pugh would be casting it. It gives a hint that Messiah is already on the pi- in the pipeline. Yeah. I, I think I think Villeneuve is is entranced into this world, and I don't think he will be leaving it for some time soon. As a, as a personal uh, opinion, I think you know this is a, a dream project for him, and he said so as such. Sticking with June and Austin Butler, who's going to be seen in the um, Elvis biopic from Baz Luhrmann, is also in negotiations to star in the next June movie as Fade Rother, which. Those who know June from the old film will know that the character of Fade Rofer was played by Sting in a plastic pair of Y-fronts. I don't think he's going to have the plastic Y-fronts in this one, but it's an interesting bit of casting. Again, Villeneuve just manages to stack the casting up beautifully. Uh, The actors also appeared in um, the Shannara Chronicles and Switched at Birth and also had a presence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Dead Don't Die. So he'll take the role of the nephew of Baron Harkonnen, who's also skilled in hand-to-hand combat. Uh, he's one of the key, three key roles from the book that wasn't put into the first film. And that's because Villeneuve didn't want to overburden the first half of the film with multiple threads that might not come to fruition. Whereas now he can delve into all the Harkonnen aspect in the second film in full detail. Very excited. Oh, I can't wait for more Dune. Uh, just staying with Warner Brothers, because we've been talking about this for, well, over about the last four or five weeks and Peacemaker has finally got a UK release date, and it's confirmed for March of this month. Uh, It was announced on James Gunn's Twitter that uh, it is, as we suspected, going to be shown on Sky and Now TV. And so uh, set your watches, because that date is the 22nd of March. It's taking its time. Which will be when our next episode goes out. So there's your reminder, ladies and gentlemen. When next week's episode lands... Put on Sky TV and watch Peacemaker once you're finished listening to us, obviously. Thoroughly recommend it. When it comes to reviews, we're going to be talking about the Adam Project. But the next bit of news, well, 
it's surprising, but it's not really surprising. In fact, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I heard this rumour through my contacts uh, a couple of months ago, which is Sean Levy, after directing Ryan Reynolds for a, a couple of outings now, is going to be directing Deadpool 3. Yes. Uh, the, the pair have worked together on Free Guy and The Adam Project. And, I mean, it makes sense that, that he would land the gig for directing this based on the relationship that he seems to have struck up with Deadpool himself, Ryan Reynolds. The first film, as we know, was led by Tim Miller, who left on during production of the second film because he had creative differences between he and Reynolds. Reynolds, as a producer on the Deadpool movies, knows what he wants from it, and he wants a director to share his vision. He seems to, Sean Levy seems to really gel with him. Free Guy was an absolute blast, and we'll talk about The Adam Project later. Uh, but Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick are returning to write the third film because initially Bob's Burgers duo, Wendy Molyneux and Lizzie molyneux Lodlin were penning the early draft. But now they've got the writers of the other two films to come back and polish it up and finish it off. Right. Whether this is because now it's going to integrate with the MCU, it needs to be redrafted and changed and they're not available. I don't know. But at least it means that it'll thematically stick with the first two films because the same writing team. Levy also recently spoke, interestingly, of his desire to pair Reynolds up with Jackman on screen. Not necessarily in a Deadpool movie. He wasn't talking about Deadpool at all. But he's just said that their fun off-screen rivalry would work well with the pair of them on screen. And he's worked with both of them. I mean, he worked with um, Jackman on Real Steel yes, all those right. years ago. A film a film that we, we, we absolutely yeah, love. Yeah, I watched it again on the show. a couple of weeks ago. I, I found it in a bargain basement Blu-ray sale just before Christmas. And it was... It was something like a quid. And I thought, you know what? For a quid, I'll buy yeah. it and I can show it the boy. And, and the boy was, yeah, I wasn't too keen for about the first 20 minutes. He thought it was a bit of a slog. Once giant robots appeared, knocking seven shades out of each other, he was in. And it is, it's a lovely little film. Levy's yeah. got an interesting career because he started off doing Dross, like the Pink Panther remake with Steve Martin. Yeah. And then he did Real Steel. And then he did, he, he was the driving force behind with the Duffer Brothers, Stranger Things. Um, yeah. He's he's showed his his love of genre. Yeah, and he's and every one of his projects seems to have tapped into. It's get it's got an emotional core to it. It taps into the emotions really well. So I'm I'm interested to see what he brings to a Deadpool movie. Yeah. Uh, whether he brings Hugh Jackman along for the ride. I mean, come on, we've been wanting Hugh Jackman to just play Wolverine one more time, but in a Deadpool movie, haven't we? Let's be honest. We certainly have. Uh, Disney and Pixar's relationship is souring more and more each day. I don't know whether you've seen the news this week. No, tell me more. We know that employees at Pixar have been understandably unhappy recently because, you know, Soul and Luca went straight to Disney+, and this week's Turning Red also went to Disney+, despite them being told by Disney that no more would go straight to there and they go to the cinemas. But things came to the head this week with the recent passing of the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, which limits what can be taught in classrooms regarding gender and sexual orientation. Now, Disney CEO, CEO Bob Chapek released a statement last week saying the biggest impact the company can make is in creating a more inclusive world through the inspiring content we produce and pledged $5 million to the human rights campaign HRC and other organizations. The HRC has rejected Disney's donation, stating they can't accept it until we see them build on their public commitment and meaningful actions to be taken to combat the legislation. Right. So Let's cut to a couple of days ago and an open letter signed by the LGBTQIA plus employees of Pixar and their allies 
They've shot down Chapek's idea of impacting society through the content they produce, as they claim several Pixar pictures and scripts featuring LGBTQIA plus elements were rejected by Disney. We at Pixar have personally witnessed beautiful stories full of diverse characters come back from corporate Disney corporate reviews shaved down to crumbs of what they once were. Nearly every moment of overtly gay affection is cut at Disney's behest, regardless of when there is protest from both the creative teams and executive leadership of Pixar. Even if creating LGBTQIA plus content was the answer to fixing the discriminatory legislation in the world, we are being barred from creating it. Beyond the inspiring content that we aren't even allowed to create, we require action. The full letter is up on Twitter. Then the news came as Turning Red was getting about to debut on the Disney Plus streaming service. And it shows that Pixar now generally don't give a damn how Disney look at them now. It looks like they've basically had it all the Pixar animators with how Disney are treating Pixar. What should be the gem in their crown, the one that gets the awards, the one that gets the recognition. And this relationship has completely soured. Absolutely soured. I can't see what Pixar can actually do because they are owned by Disney. The only yeah. thing that you can do is individuals from that production company can leave, yep. start their own animation studio, which is a costly, but or, or leave and go to work for other animation studios. But Pixar itself is so tied into Disney. You know, the merchandising alone is, is, is worth millions, absolutely millions. So I, I can't see what, what Pixar can do to be able to, untie themselves from yeah. from the disney brand well maybe as you suggested they could join other animation studios That's possibly netflix yeah where the annie awards took place this weekend which annually celebrate the best in the field of animation and netflix films such as the mitchells versus the machines scored wins scored eight wins mitchells versus the machines because Just netflix so. gave them the freedom to do what they wanted to Arcane, the Netflix TV series take on League of Legends game, won nine awards, including Best TV Media for the general audience. And all in all, Netflix won 20 out of the night's 31 animation trophies. The Mitchells win is seen as a big one, as it could give the film an edge over Disney's um, Encanto as the favourite for Best Animated Film at the Oscars, right. with final voting for that award to start this Thursday. Um, other winners at the Annie Awards, Encanto, Neon's documentary Flea, and two Netflix kids series with Mayor and the Three, Ada Twist Scientist, and the video game Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart and Marvel's What If also took awards. But Netflix scoring so much shows that Netflix have an animation studio that is well and truly worth keeping an eye on. Maybe Absolutely. Pixar animators could find a really good home over there. It would be a shame. I was just about to say exactly that, because Pixar, as you said, is the crown jewel. Reinvigorated yep. Disney and their animation side. So, yeah, it's going to be uh, uh, an interesting ride, but it's it's disappointing uh, to see disappointing. That, that that studio is, is, uh, has been driven to do that. Uh, I'm just going to mention a couple of TV tidbits, apart from The Peacemaker, uh, that I briefly mentioned. But Giancarlo Esposito is to star in a remake of the BBC miniseries The Driver. Ernie Hudson has joined the cast of the Quantum Leap reboot. The Muppet Mayhem series is headed for Disney Plus, and something I can't wait for, Russian Doll returns in April with a second series, and the first series was just a thing. 
of beauty. Uh, sticking with TV and Netflix is negotiating to greenlight a TV series adaptation of Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman. Never saw that. I'm not a big fan of Guy Ritchie's, you know. Uh, for me, it's it's one of his finest. It has a feel of his earlier, like Snatch and Lockstock era, but it also has like, it has a link to like the Hollywood industry. The, the original film started off as a TV series pitch anyway, before it became right. a feature that scored acclaim for the colourful performances from Hugh Grant as a sleazy journalist to Colin Farrell as a plaid tracksuit-wearing fighting coach and Charlie Hunnam as an enforcer. Matthew McConaughey, Henry Golding, Jeremy Stock, Eddie Marson, Michelle Dockery, all co-starred in the film, and it did pretty well. 22 million budget took 115 million. That's pretty good. Yeah. Richie has co-wrote the series as pilot script and plans to direct the first two episodes and then serve as executive producer on the rest of the series, which Miramax TV is producing alongside Moon Age and Netflix. I'm interested because I think that the, the, he initially said that The Gentleman was going to be the first film in like a, a, a world setting three films. But he said this with um, Rock and Roll and we've never seen Rock and Roll or two, so I don't know what's happening there. So the TV series gives him a chance to pad out that world and play with the characters in them. I think it's an interesting idea. I like the fact that it started off as a TV series, got made into a film, and now it's returning to where he originally planned it. Okay. Another week has passed. So you know what that means? What's that? We've got more names for Oppenheimer. <laughs> of course we have. <laughs> uh, any any more names I, for Knives Out? Because I think even <laughs> when the film comes out, they'll still be adding cast members. <laughs> I, saw, I saw someone yesterday tweet out, um, the cast of Knives Out have all been added to the cast of Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah, so, so true. Um, at this point, I'm starting to think that by the time Oppenheimer releases, I'll discover that I was actually cast in the film as well. <laughs> Matthias Schweighofer, who you'll remember from um, Army of the Dead yeah. and also Army of Thieves. Uh, Josh Peck, Harrison Gilbertson, Emily Dumont, Guy Burnett and Danny DeFerrari all been added to the film that has already been shooting and seems like it's going to be shooting forever if they don't stop adding people to it. We don't know what roles anyone's playing in it. They might just be one-shot support roles. We don't know. But the project is filming at the moment with a July 2023 release plan if, if he stops recruiting more people before then. Eventually, we're going to run out of news on Oppenheimer. But at this rate, we're going to go through everyone in Hollywood before we do. <laughs> Other casting news. Elvira herself, actress Cassandra Peterson, has joined Rob Zombie's The Monsters movie. Still not sure what to make of The Monsters movie. I'm not a fan at all of Rob Zombie as a, as a filmmaker, as a musician for that matter. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I, I, I've got a lot of love for Elvira. I think she's fantastic. I hope yeah. she is the element that makes it worth watching. I mean, if you were casting Elvira in a Monsters film, who would you cast her as? Elvira. Every time. <laughs> she could be anywhere. She's omnipresent. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, she'd be the perfect fit for Lily Munster. So you But think. due to it being a Rob Zombie film, obviously Sherry Moon Zombie, who has absolutely no acting ability, is playing the key role of Lily. So rather against type, Elvira is going to be playing Barbara Carr, the plaid suit wearing prim and proper normal person who's the real estate agent in Mockingbird Heights. It's bizarre casting. Her being in it makes me kind of more interested to see what the take ends up being like, but I'm not a lover of Rob Zombie's normal approach to movies. No, not at all. It remains to be seen whether he can handle comedy. Uh, are you a fan of Peaky Blinders? I re that's one of those shows that I really need to catch up on. 
I've watched first season and second season and then just never got back to it. I, I was never, never a huge fan, but it's on its fifth and final season. So what they're going to do after that is they're going to do a big screen version, which centers on the exploits of some of the characters during the war. But I can't tell you who those characters are because I don't know who they are in relation to the show because I just never really got into it. I thought it looked great. But I, yeah. I don't know, just never landed for me. This is a piece of interesting news that I, I'm still trying to figure and get my head over. So we've been talking about this for almost a year, that, that it was announced that, that Marvel was to produce a, a Disney Plus Halloween special, Werewolf by Night. There is rumour that Blade will make his first appearance in said Werewolf by Night. Interestingly enough, though, have you seen who the director is? No. Batman composer Michael Giacano. Very interesting to put, like, you know, he, he's, he's great. His soundtracks are phenomenal, and the Batman soundtrack is, I've had it on repeat most of this week, but I never thought of him as a director. No. Is that probably one of the only, when a talent takes a change of direction, and becomes a director. So we've we've seen producers with it, Matthew Vaughan. Yeah, we've seen writers do it all the time. Uh, editors have, have gone on. John Otterman is a composer and also an editor. But is it the first time that a that a composer has become a director? I could say John Carpenter is a director who's mm -hmm. also a composer. But but this is new. Yeah, interesting. We'll yep. see how that turns out. Going to be interesting to see how it pans out. Yeah. I've got confidence that it will pan out okay because Marvel aren't known for making many flubs. So, yeah, interesting to look for. Christopher Abbott from Catch-22 and Possessor is set to join Sony Pictures and Marvel's Craven the Hunter film. Unconfirmed reports are indicating he's up for the role of the primary villain, the Foreigner. Do you remember the Foreigner? Yes. He's a, for those who don't, a mercenary assassin, exceptionally skilled martial artist who's been a Spider-Man villain and joins a quickly swelling cast in the film that stars Aaron Taylor-Johnson as the eponymous Russian big game hunter character from Marvel Comics lore. I'm actually getting more and more excited for this the mm. more that I'm reading about I it. I wish I was. I love the character of Craven the Hunter. Yeah. I love the background story of his family history and all that, and it seems though it wants to embrace that as the origin story for Craven. I mean, I've been reading through like the current run of Spider-Man, like I said, on Marvel Unlimited, I'm a couple of months behind, and Craven's just been tracking down Ben Riley, and it's it's the respect that he has for his prey. And it's the hunt aspect that I love. He's not necessarily a villain villain. He's He's got his honour that he's working to. And I want to see this in the film. I'm so hopeful for this. Uh, JC right. Chandor is directing this film from a script by Art Markham, Matt Holloway and Richard Wenk. And it, the film is due to open January the 13th, 2023. Unless there's reshuffles because Morbius was supposed to have been out by now. But um, eventually that's going to come out. <laughs> we've reached the who cares stage for Mobius, haven't we? Yeah, it's. I think it's been put back and put back so much that people have completely dropped it from their radar. It needed to have been released close to, Vill uh, to Venom 2 in order to get that wave. Now it's far too late. Do you remember when John Woo was a thing? Yeah, I mean, I'd followed John Woo with movies like The Killers and Hard Boiled, and then he made the jump to... Uh, the US with Hard Target, I think, was his first one. Yeah. But after that, he pretty much underwhelmed. Face Off, Mission Impossible 2, 
it didn't have the John Woo that we loved from his Hong Kong movies. It all, it all culminated in 2003 as Western Dabbling with Paycheck, which was very poorly received and did absolutely nothing at the box office. And since then, he's only made films within Asia. He's not made anything in the Western markets. Well, he's now begun production on an action feature called Silent Night, starring Joel Kinnaman as a father seeking revenge for the death of his son. But the key selling point is that the movie is going to contain no dialogue. Right. Interesting concept movie. Whether this will work, I mean, let's be honest, John Woo films, you don't really need the dialogue to follow them through because the action tells it anyway. And he's very good with his balletic kind of action approaches, but he became a bit too generic in his approach. You could, you had a tick box of like, "Mm, white birds flying against flames, tick. A a church scene, tick. Face to face, looking into mirrors, tick. Back to back against different walls, throw, uh, like... Jumping off bikes, tick, helicopter gunship, yep. Everything was a tick box exercise for him. Whether he's still going to have that tick box exercise, I don't know. But I'm intrigued. I like Joel Kinnaman as an actor. I think he's uh, a solid lead. And shooting is currently underway in North America. Okay, we'll keep you posted. But for now, that's the news. So this is the point in the show where we ask a massive from you. Head over to your favourite podcast platform if you haven't done so find the film file and hit that subscribe button and remember to leave a like because without you dear listeners there is no film file it's just a figment of your imagination in a snow globe snowing over a hospital if you can figure out that (laughs) and if you know that reference a drink's on me but if you want to know more about the film file you can do so including finding out what that reference was by simply (laughs) heading over to Twitter, where you can find us at Filmfile UK. Other social media platforms, Filmfile UK. WordPress, filmfileuk.wordpress.com. Or you can email us. If you want to know what that reference is, email us. And we'll answer it via your email. We'll send you a personal email in reply. Not too personally, because we could get arrested. (laughs) You can send emails with questions, queries, films that you love, films that you hate. Anything you want us to talk about, things you want us to deep dive podcast at filmfile.uk we would love to hear from you we always enjoy interacting with the audience out there so now it's time for this week's deep dive this deep dive this week well could be our most contentious yet as we go into the eighth dimension for the adventures of Bukuru Banzai across the eighth dimension he's a rocker Doctor. Don't talk about that. You never know what it might be attached to. Inventor. Philosopher. No matter where you go, there you are. And the only hero. Buckaroo. 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 Curse are you, bonsai! Who can save us all? Evil. You are unstoppable from the eighth dimension. Launch thermal pod. Buckaroo bonsai. Is pure nutty fun. Buckaroo, you forgot your thruster. What are you all for what? The cult sci-fi classic. Run, run! In a dimension all its own. Real life Martians landing in New Jersey. Torito. We will fire a portable beam weapon. Vaporize the whole damn planet. If we blow this today, get him up. There ain't no tomorrow. Left, I said left. This is left. I mean my left. All left, go your right. 
Fucker, the president's calling about is everything okay with the alien space club and planet 10, or should we just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai. Which was yes, destroy Russia or uh, number two? So, you know, I've been harping on about Buckaroo Bonsai <laughs> for, for, for probably nearly a year. There's not been an episode that's gone by without some reference to the film. And even in some episodes, more than once, Buckaroo Bonsai, you ask? What by Jingo is that? Well, I'll tell you. It's a 1984 American science fiction film produced and directed by W.D. Richer and written by Earl Mike Rorge. It starred genre favourite Peter Weller. Yes, he of Robocop fame. Amongst the cast, get this folks, John Lithgow, Ellen Barkin, Christopher Lloyd, Jeff Goldblum, Clancy Brown, Carl Lumley. And it's a film you've never heard about, but you've heard that guy on the podcast gone about it. What on earth could it be about? And that is the question. The film centers upon the efforts of a polymath, Dr. Bukru Banzai, a physician, a neurosurgeon, test pilot, and of course, close to my heart, a rock star. He's there to save the world by defeating a band of interdimensional aliens, the Red Lectoids from Planet 10. This is an action-adventure comedy that blends science fiction genres, romance, you name it, this movie's got it. I love it, but I tell you what, for all its pure, out-there fun, there are some who just don't get it. Andy, tell me your viewpoint on the adventures of Bukuru Banzai across the eighth dimension. Because I have been knocking on for some time. <laughs> now, this is a film that not only Lee has knocked on about for some time, but this is a film that has been referenced in so much genre entertainment throughout my life that I've always felt that somehow I'm, I've missed the joke by not watching it. Because episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation on the data screens, they would hide references to this film within there with names of ships or names of captains referencing Buckaroo Banzai. Apparently, it's beloved by pretty much everyone to do with genre entertainment. Everyone loves this film. And as a huge film geek and a huge genre fan, surely I was going to love it. Surely I had to. And wow, I needed to get around to watching this. And my instant response that I posted on Letterboxd as soon as I finished <laughs> was... What the hell have I just watched? <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Is it this part of an elaborate joke, a 30-year joke to build me up with excitement for something only to make... Have you all been working in unison together with everyone in the world who's mentioned this film just to catch me off guard? Yeah. The 102-minute runtime was a mess of ideas. It felt like a, a, a screenplay had been written on crayon by a 13-year-old boy Rockstar neurosurgeon, physicist, test pilot Banzai finishes off complicated surgery before speeding in test vehicles and breaking dimensional walls. All of this before lunch. Um, surrounded by his Hong Kong Cavaliers band, all experts in various fields who want to join him on this ride. Uh, what I got from the mess that followed was a tragically B-movie plot that I couldn't work out whether it wanted to be a comedy, but I wasn't laughing because sometimes it took itself overly serious. Even whilst one character parades around in a garish cowboy outfit, and there'll be more on that later when we talk about the casting. It baffled me. Banzai can manage to interrupt his gigs, although it is worth noting that the gig that he interrupts to spot a depressed woman and sing directly to, 
didn't have a lot of people in the audience, so he can't be that much of a rock star. But that person turns out to be, coincidentally, his late wife's long-lost twin sister. I mean, this script is awful. <laughs> this, this is, this is thir- like I say, 13-year-old schoolboy level of writing. It's all coincidences and ideas with no coherence at all. And the dimensional war going on between the red lectoids and the black lectoids with John Lithgow. You know what? Tell me what you love about it before we talk about the casting. Tell me what it is that you love about it, because I genuinely could not get this. <laughs> Everything you disliked about Bukuru Banzai is what I like. I like the fact that it's strange. <laughs> I find I, I love the fact that it's unintelligible. I love the fact that it doesn't make a lick of sense. I love the fact that it's it's a modern take on Doc Savage, Man of Bronze. You know, the hero can do everything, and he's got his... his band of guys around him who kind of fill in the gaps astrophysicists, surgeons, all those sort of things. I like the fact that it's ridiculously cool but it doesn't, yeah you're right it doesn't make a lick of sense (laughs) but I love the weirdness of it I love the fact that it exists that a film like Bukuru Banzai is out there and it exists when it just takes pop culture and all the pulpy elements that I love about pop culture and, and throws them into this bizarre mix. It's a bit like your, your grandma making a stew that's got a bit of everything in it, and you go, this shouldn't work. But for me, it worked. And and I get that people don't like it. I really do. It, it, it's got problems. The film was basically unfinished. I mean, that's the story behind it because they kind of ran out of money. And so there's a lots of lots of problems with the film visually that there's there's no close-ups because they shot all the masters. And as the yeah. studio started to sort of pull the plug on it, it it, it kind of came out as an unfinished version. But I love the fact that it throws you into a world that goes, here, here's Bukuru Banzai's world. Just accept it as though you have seen the the five other Bukuru Banzai movies. And this is this is the, the next part of, of all the series that you've you should have seen before. And I and I just think it's got a sort of it's a. It's a, in, in essence, it's a comic strip movie. It's a, a pulp fiction, and I mean that in the in the sense of your Doc Savages, your, your Shadows, the yeah. Avengers, all those sorts of things. And it's just got that weirdness. That I get it. There's a there's a melon, a watermelon in one shot, uh, and it's there being experimented on. And it's just <laughs> it's just sort of referenced by. Oh, we'll get back to that later. Uh, I think it's one of the most. It's got some fantastic quotes, and clearly, it's not just me. Who loves it? Because it's uh, it's referenced by so many filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned to Andy when when we were going to talk about this, the end of uh, the Life Aquatic, the final march is the final march straight out of the end of uh, a Bukuru Banzai, and the fact that Jeff Goldblum's in it, the fact that it, it gets referenced in Ready Player One, the fact that everybody for years has wanted to see a sequel. The fact that there's been so many attempts to make a, a, a TV series. Uh, Kevin Smith was announced at one point to be doing an adaptation of it for Amazon Studios. It's a film that you've just you just kind of kind of get, or you don't. And, and and I think it's not even one of those films which is Marmite. It's you you get it or you don't <laughs> get it. It's it is, and that's again a, it's a thing to love about it for me. It's 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 a film that went out to do. We're just going to do something that. That if you if you get it, fantastic. If you don't, hey, it doesn't matter. It, I I just love the fact that a, a movie like The Adventures <laughs> of Bukuru Banzai 
exists in, in my world. It truly bewildered me from start to finish. The cast all seem to be thinking they're on different films. You've got Peter, Peter Weller is giving it all like gritty, down and dirty, like serious, straight laced. Then you've got Lithgow chewing scenery and, and being buffoonery as Emilio Lizardo. And See, how could you not love a character called Emilio Lizardo? <laughs> Clancy Brown and Christopher Lloyd popping up, raised a little bit of a smile. And it, this is the Kevin Bacon of films that there's so many links to everything else within it. You, you know, if you're ever playing like a, a seven degrees fill like game, go through this because yeah. you're going to link everyone with everyone. We, we did everyone. it, didn't we, the other week on a deep dive and I went, there's a Book Crew Banzai <laughs> connection. Yeah. There's another Book Crew Banzai connection. Which now I can see why you connect the film to so many things that we talk about because everyone who is everyone is linked into this film. It, I said earlier that I'll get back, when we talk about the casting, I'll get back to a cowboy-wearing character. And that's Jeff Goldblum's character. The brain surgeon who wants to join Banzai's troupe and for some reason decides that he needs to wear a bright red and white cowboy costume. Which, you know, generally that's yet more nonsense that was just like, what's going on? But for some strange reason, with Goldblum playing this role, that actually seemed to make perfect natural sense. <laughs> You've got to remember that's that's prime Goldblum as well. He was he was not yes. the fly, and he still wasn't the massive star that he became with Jurassic Park. That was that was your left of center Goldblum yeah. days. It felt like you, they were just letting Goldblum be himself and just turn up wearing a daft costume because that's how eccentric and weird he is. As a result, this film gained one solid extra star on my star rating on Letterboxd because Goldblum is always fun when he's allowed to be bonkers. And he kind of matches the chaos and absolute bonkers mess that's going on around him. As a result, everyone else feels awkwardly out of place, acting hammily over the top. Lithgow, I'm talking about you. You are so over the top. But Goldblum's own reality of slightly off-kilter edge slots in perfectly. Yeah. If everyone was acting like Jeff Goldblum in this film, I probably would have embraced it more, but it's the fact that everyone's acting against each other and pulling the film in different directions while the story's pulled itself in about 40 directions at the same time. I just I felt it was an incomprehensible mess of ideas with underdeveloped characters. It felt like there was five or six films mashed into one rather than, you know, spending time to develop things. And you said about the budget cuts meant that they couldn't go back and do reshoots and close-ups and things, which means that the direction just feels functional as opposed to creative. And it doesn't lend anything to the proceedings. It feels like literally you've set up a camera and just says, do stuff in front of it. And then half an hour later, okay, stop, move on. And there's nothing, no use of the camera. It's just filming things. It's a cult film that I got the feeling at the end of it that maybe I needed to have been there when it got released. You know, sat with mates, drunk or stoned, uh, watching this on VHS. And then I might have appreciated it and it will have grown with me. But it's scraped overall, and I say scraped, this is proper scraped, two stars off me on Letterboxd. And one of those stars was purely because of Goldblum. I found this film, no, I'm going to start that again. Keep it in, don't cut it. This film found me. It was a time when I was getting a little bit bored with kind of the Hollywood blockbuster. So this is the 80s, I said it was 84. Yeah. And... um. I'd heard about this film because, hey, guys, there was no internet back there. <laughs> Be shocked. I know. And, and I, I'd i hear about Bukuru Banzai in Starlog magazine. And the film never got a, a UK cinema release because it, it, it failed at the box office. And I, you know what? I can, I can totally understand 
why it didn't do well. But I wrote to 20th Century Fox and went, is this film going to be uh, ever going to be released in the UK? Can you give me some direction? I got back not only a letter, but I got to join the Blue Blaze Irregulars. I became uh, <laughs> I became part of there was a an underground 20th Century Fox fan guide. They sent me a badges. They sent me posters. <laughs> they sent me a newsletter from Bukuru Banzai himself. I became a part of the team, and this film found me. And then it it just never turned up at the cinema. I'd read all about this. I read the Marvel Comics adaptation. So I knew who Bukuru Banzai was. And then it turned up on VHS a, a few years later when I think um, uh, Canon bought a whole bunch of, of movies from Fox. And, and I just loved it. And it was it was just weird and odd and, and day glow and 80s. Uh, and who didn't want to be a rock star that was also a test pilot? It was just it was just a film made in heaven. There's a lot of problems with it. I, I, I grant it. I mean, it's not. It's not a, a work of, 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 of perfection by any stretch of the imagination, but it's its edginess and its rawness and it's and it's just its craziness that it just says, hey, here's Bukuru Banzai's world. Have you not seen the other movies? They exist in, a, in another universe. It's I think it's ahead of its time. And I think we are now ready for, <laughs> for that kind of cross up of, of genres, but which, which I think back then we weren't when our other main hero on the big screen was was Indiana Jones. I, I just think it was it was um, 30 years too early. And I think you could come back and re, redo Bukuru Banzai, keeping the character uh, and do a TV series about it and have that, you know, you think of stuff like the Umbrella Academy, which has got that kind of out there approach, which I, I just think it was it was way, way ahead of its time. I, I actually commented to someone in work this week after watching it that it felt like a film that was ahead of its time whilst also being really out of date at the same time. There you go, a perfect Bookaroo Banzai quote. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, they, I mean, we've spoken before how we tend to agree on a lot of things, and sometimes we've, we we slightly disagree. I mean, our Batman review last week, I loved it. You enjoyed it, but had problems. I think this is the, this is the first time that we've actually been at complete opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> on something. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, take note of how how we didn't start deriding each other on this. We spoke of why we feel how we feel. This is how you debate liking and disliking films. You don't always have to agree on something. Oh, no, you do it with great humour. Yeah, I, I can understand how people could have latched onto it. Like I've said, maybe if I was there when it came out and it had caught me at that that essential time in my life of like teenagers, years, I might it, this might be one that has grown with me. But I'm clearly approaching this film far too late in the day. And as a result, I'm approaching it and watching it and going, I don't get it. I don't Andy, get it. Nobody's nobody. Everyone has something to offer. This this <laughs> this is your wild, wild west, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it is. Because <laughs> Wild Wild West, for those who don't know, that's the film that I defend to the hilt. I love that film and no one else does. So this is Lee's Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to find Bakru Banzai, you can do so by uh, selling your soul to Satan. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been invaded by a red lectoid? It's available to stream for a rental fee or purchase on all your platforms, Amazon, X, iTunes, etc., etc. It's not available for free on anything, but if you really want to check it out, rental fees are about £2.50. Give it a shot. So next week, we'll be back for another deep dive. And you know what? We might even agree. Okay, so... 
we've got reviews for you. Only two this week. One I've seen, but Andy, of course, has seen both. Andy, kick off with the film that I haven't seen. So that film is Pixar's latest entry, Turning Red, that landed on Disney Plus this week. I'm Maylin Lee. I wear what I want, say what I want. I'm all about the hustle. Streaming March 11th on Disney Plus. It's a lot. And any strong emotion. Uh, May? Why are you staring at Carter Murphy Mayhew? We'll release the panda. Disney and Pixar's Turning Red. Rated PG. Original movie streaming March 11th. Only on Disney+. Plus. Mei Li is a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian student who struggles to fit in as it is, with dedication to family matters often interfering with her relationship with friends and her obsessing over the boy band Fortown. However, things get even more complicated as she hits the change. And by which, I mean she finds out that she's transforming into a giant red panda whenever she gets emotional. But with her transformation comes a new opportunity to be accepted by her peers, but at the potential risk of everything else. As you'd expect from Pixar, the animation in this is superb. The level of detail that they add to textures and environments really do highlight why they are the jewel in the crown of animation studios. In addition, with a couple of notable exceptions, Pixar know how to create a good story with a strong emotional core, and this is one of their strongest. The family-friends balance that all teens find themselves confronted with, along with other aspects of coming of age, are handled so deftly. Sharply humorous misunderstandings, sometimes slapstick humour and witty asides are layered throughout, but never upset or get in the way of the solid core story. We can all relate to aspects of May's position in life. We've all been young teens, awkwardly stumbling around in an attempt to be accepted and embarrassed by the actions of our parents and ourselves. And this makes the film connect with adults on an emotional core, whilst the vibrant images and fun will engage the younger audiences. This is yet another solid outing for Pixar, and it's such a huge disappointment that it's been buried onto the streaming platform, as opposed to a joyous cinema release that it much richly deserves. It was a a toss-up in our house because we were going away, which film we were going to watch. And, And funny, that was my first choice. So I think when we finish this recording, it'll be tonight's uh, tonight's viewing. So by this time uh, the, the show's come out, I'll have seen this. So the film that we've both seen, we mentioned it earlier in the news by talking about Sean Levy, is Ryan Reynolds, Zoe Saldana in Sean Levy's The Adam Project. You knew how to get into my dad's garage. Take it easy. We have the same scar. Right here. And you're wearing my dad's watch. You're me. I once was. Where are you going? Landed on Netflix on Friday, the story of a rogue pilot, Adam Reed, played in full Ryan Reynolds mode by Ryan Reynolds, a time traveller from the year 2050 who accidentally crashed lands in 2022, finds himself face-to-face with his 12-year-old self and together the pair bond and head back in time to face up to the past to save the Earth's future. From what I know, this has been kicking around in some form for a few years. Originally, uh, Tom Cruise was connected to it, and I'm guessing it didn't have the kind of comedy elements that that we've got now. Uh, It was a spec script in 2012, I believe. 
But the version we have got is very much uh, a Ryan Reynolds movie. I'm guessing you like this a lot. What makes you think that? <laughs> it's a, is, is, it the, is it the fact that my, ma- my man crush Ryan Reynolds is basically playing Ryan Reynolds? He's full of the charm and witty rapport. He is, he is playing the Ryan. Yeah, I mean, if you're not a fan of Ryan Reynolds' shtick, then keep away from this film completely because he plays it completely. It, I've, I've thought it was a solid sci-fi action film. It had a good emotional core, but Ryan Reynolds's rapport, and in particular, when confronted with a 12-year-old version of himself played beautifully by Walker Scoble, who has the same quick wit, it makes for some joyous interactions between the pair as they play off against each other. I had a lot of fun with this film. Um, as you know as well, we've spoken about in, in the past on the show, I'm a big fan of time travel, and I love I love deconstructing how time travel is used within things. And I love the fact that here it's presented physically as opening of wormholes. I love the whole wormhole idea of um, traveling through time. And the theorizing of how memories update only when you return to your fixed timeline point, And that's when it catches up with you. What we get in this film, what well, what I got in this film was a fun action adventure with a warm depth to characters that uses the star's strength to great effect. And you, you mean you mentioned Zoe Saldana's in there. She's in it briefly, and she's as charming as ever. But you've got Mark Ruffalo popping up as Adam's father. And when he pops up, that's when the film generates a huge heart. And by the end of it, it had me wiping, wiping my eyes to make sure there was no more tears about to flow because it really connected with me. I thought that everyone was fantastic in this. The special effects were perfunctory. They did, did the trick, nothing over the top kind of seen some of the action sequences before but it was handled well and i do think i said earlier in the news that sean levy seems to have a handle on how to utilize ryan reynolds really well and they clearly work well together free guy worked in such a similar manner it utilized ryan reynolds witty rapport as the foundation for it and it's just a shame for me that the adam project went straight to netflix because i think this would have looked great on the big screen for the majority of what you've said andy i i totally agree hey look i had a had a good time with this one there was some good laugh out loud moments in it there was some great little emotionally heart-tugging scenes and i'm looking at the ryan reynolds scene when he's in the bar talking to jennifer garno i thought was stunning uh, a, a career best mm-hmm. i think for both of them um I, I you know what i i did i had, had a good time it was very fast food and what i mean by that while you're watching it you're enjoying it and it, and it was forgettable and, and that's the only problem i had with this because what worked for me in this film was uh, uh ryan reynolds uh, on-screen relationship with Walker Scoble. And that's the film that I wanted to see. The action elements took me completely out of it because they were just generally pedestrian and it, it didn't offer anything new. The relationship building in this film is what made it clever, what made it smart, and what I think probably sold the script in the first place. And I just wanted to see more of that because as soon as he entered into that second half of the movie where they had to go back in time. Yes, there was a great scene with Mark Ruffalo in. But as soon as it became just a, a generic action time travel movie, I was kind of done because the best bits were, were certainly top heavy, which was, was that relationship between the older Adam and the younger Adam as they tried to figure each other out and what went wrong yeah. in, in their lives. That was beautiful. That was such a joy because A, the charisma of the two stars, as you said, Scoble just plays Ryan Reynolds perfectly <laughs> with the smart mouth. 
But I wanted to see that movie and I wasn't bothered about the second movie that it became because I'd seen that movie before many times uh, uh, and I thought the uniqueness was in, was in that relationship and that's what held the film together. But it, it was enjoyable. I didn't hate it, far from it. I, I had a good time with it. But I think there was a, there was a better take on that and I'd like to have spent more time not having the generic kind of action sequences and the generic villain, even though it was a neat idea. I, I preferred the relationship between those two guys, and I could have seen an hour and a half movie about them coming to terms with each other. But it, it, it is it is decent fun, and it was a, a, a great kind of Friday night film. It's a film that I will be watch, re-watching. For me, you know, it's one of Ryan Reynolds's finest fun films, and I'm a huge fan of Reynolds, so of course I'm going to gravitate towards it. At the most, it's shown me that, you know, Levy and Reynolds together bodes well for Deadpool 3. Yeah, yeah, they get each other. They clearly are on the same wavelength. Yeah. So it's on Netflix at the moment. Give it a check out. If you agree with Lee, you'll find it just a bit of diversionary fun. If you agree with me, it'll become one of your favourite films of the year so far. And fans, we didn't fall out once. Because we respect each other's opinion. Respect the view. Okay, Andy, what's uh, what's due to land over the next week? So at cinemas, there's one film that I know that we both want to see, which is The Phantom of the Open. Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance, underdog story based on actual British characters. And there's a film that I'm pretty sure that neither of us want to see, which is the Nan movie, the Catherine Tate. No. Hang on, isn't this like 15 years too late film? There's a place in hell for this movie. <laughs> so over on streaming... Uh, Reminiscence, I've already seen it. I don't know whether you got a chance no, to see I it. No, I didn't. I was away when it landed and it just looked kind of uninspiring. Yeah, I'd say I'd say watch it with low expectations just for there's some aspect in it that worked. That lands on Now TV and Sky this coming week. Black Crab lands on Netflix, which is an action thriller with Numi Rapace. And Windfall, which sees Jason Segal, Jesse Plemons, Lily Collins in a noir thriller about a man who breaks into a tech giant's empty vacation home, but then is disturbed by the mogul and his wife as they arrive for a last-minute getaway. Looks intriguing. Over on Amazon, Deep Water. <laughs> the, uh, well, I think this is going to be a car crash of a film because it's the Anna Diarmis and Ben Affleck erotic thriller that has had a lot of notoriety around it in, pre- in the past yeah. few months. It was pulled back onto the schedule, pulled back onto the schedule. Hmm. Doesn't sound like a studio is invested much in this one. No. On Disney Plus this coming week, Nightmare Alley, Del Toro's remake of the old film, lands. So those who haven't had a chance to see that, again, give it a shot, but don't expect much. And the new adaptation of Cheaper by the Dozen, this time starring Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union, lands on Disney Plus. I think I'm out that night. I don't think I'm in. (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll give Cheaper by the Dozen a watch. Okay. So that is about it for this week, folks. But before we go, and we do this every week, and that is our neat things. Stuff that Andy and I have watched, enjoyed, whether we ate it, drank it, played it, read it, you name it, it's our neat thing. Andy, your neat thing for this week. So uh, Star Trek Picard. Oh, I've not started it yet. I can't wait. That's tomorrow night's plan. We're two episodes in. Now, the first season was good, but not great. I felt that it meandered around a little bit. And it it didn't didn't quite know its direction. Um, It just relied on the draw of seeing Picard again on the screen rather than delivering a solid tale. But season two isn't struggling at all. Two episodes in and we've had a face off against the Borg leading to interference by Q who has changed time 
to teach Picard one of his cryptic lessons about humanity in a mirror universe manner. Patrick Stewart is engaging as ever, as you would expect. Uh, Jerry Ryan seems to be given a lot more to play with this year. She just kind of got shoehorned in last year for no point. Did you find that a lot? That went, oh, another guest star. Yeah, on season one. Yeah. Yeah. It was constantly shoehorned and for no no relevance. Whereas now they're playing with everyone. Alison Pill is adding a fun energy. But let's be honest, we're all here this year for Q and John Delancey. Because the Q episodes of The Next Gen and following shows were some of the best of Star Trek tales. And here is no exception. He casually steals the scenes that he pops up in. And I'm hotly anticipating the weeks ahead as his scenario plays out. It's great. It looks great. It looks like the, the, I mean, the effects were good on the last season, but they look even more polished this season. We've had it confirmed that shooting is now completed on the final season, season three, which will be following next year. So it's all leading to one whole story of these final three stories of Picard. But this season has hit the ground running and boy, I am excited. I tell you what, it was almost my neat thing, but I'm, I'm just being a little bit cautious. They dropped the trailer this week for Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Boy, I yes. can't. That's the, that's the series I've wanted to see since I was a kid, since I read who Captain Christopher Pike was and who the crew was. Yeah. And I've always wanted to see the adventures of, of Christopher Pike. I cannot wait for that series. The trailer looks amazing. And it feels it feels more Star Trek. Yeah. My neat thing is I read the first book a couple of years back, and that was Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes. I, I wasn't aware that there'd been two sequels, but I found myself reading uh, Finders Keepers, the, the sequel to Mr. Mercedes, which is one of King's crime novels. So it's not a horror story, even though, of course, being King, there are horrific elements to it uh, and having such a good time. When I get into a book, I, I can't put it down and, I, and I've got to speed read it. There are some books that I've been reading for like three or four years. I'll just kind of go back to, especially if they're, they're tomes of books, but this I absolutely, absolutely could not put it down. It's the second volume in the trilogy focusing on Detective Bill Hodges. The story centers on the murder of John Rosty, a kind of iconic American novelist. He's, his house is robbed. His notebooks are stolen by a crazed fan known as Boris Bellamy, who ends up in prison and cannot read the last two stories on this American reclusive genius piece of work, a kind of catcher in the rye for a generation. And it's basically then takes place in modern day as the guy gets out of jail and comes looking for these notebooks. It's one of those, it's not a, a massive Stephen King book, which sometimes is a lot easier, but it does enable you to speed through it. And I do like a lot of King's crime stories. He always has a uh, an interesting take on uh, on, it, on his crime stories. Uh, the character of Bill Hodges is fantastic. It's the character of Holly Gibney, who has appeared in a couple of other uh, of, of his stories, which really makes this work. It's just basically, it's a really straightforward thriller that I absolutely enjoyed. And I've now discovered there is a third book and I just can't wait to read it because this has been an absolute absolute gas i've not read mr mercedes i've not watched the tv series adaptation of it either no i'd really like to see the adaptations of it but it, it is one that has been sat waiting for me to read for a while because i did buy the books for my mum over the years and as what happens with every stephen king book that i buy her it gets uh, passed along to me once she's finished reading them 
but I just never got round to reading them. He's just an expert when it comes to plotting and, and how all the pieces uh, just fall into place. And, and, and he doesn't shy away, of course, from sort of uh, a real horror in it, but he does it in a real world, in a real setting, which sometimes can be even more terrifying. But that's our neat things, and we'll have more next week. But folks, that's us. We're done. Yeah, n- next next week we'll uh, take a deep dive into something that we'll both agree on, and we'll stop arguing over films. And hopefully we're both, go- we're both <laughs> going to enjoy Mark Rylance uh, playing golf. Yeah, looking forward to that one. So have a good week, folks. Uh, remember, tell all your friends about us and become part of the Film File family. But before we go, in my experience... Nothing is ever what it seems to be, but everything is exactly what it is. (laughs) 